G'day, and welcome back to Convergently Speaking. Today, we're talking about bad deals in relationships. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Caitlin. And today what we want to talk about is an idea that I've found enormously helpful in my practice working with couples and basically I thought that you guys would benefit and find this of interest because it's really central to not just our romantic relationships but especially the closer relationships that we have in our lives. And it's the idea of bad deals in relationships This language of bad deals I got from a guy I've mentioned before on the podcast called Terry Real. And Terry Real is a very well-known couples therapist and I highly recommend any of his work. When he's talking about bad deals, what he's talking about is basically arrangements that couples come to, generally unconsciously, where where basically one person will always play one or two main roles in the relationship and the other party will play one or two other roles in in response. This isn't objectively a bad thing. Having roles in a relationship is fine. But sometimes we make deals that are bad. Sometimes we play roles in our relationship, whether we're the the one who starts it or whether we're the one who reacts to it that ultimately ends up being a bad deal for both parties involved. So I'll give you an example of what a bad deal is. I think one of the most classic bad deals and and especially one of the most classic roles that we see with couples is something in the vicinity of the angry pursuer. This is the person who is feeling dissatisfied, unhappy in some way with the relationship, with a level of connection, with a level of intimacy, with a level of closeness. And usually preceding this is a period of trying different things and attempting different strategies, trying to communicate with their partner to eventually end up in a place of anger and frustration. And so you end up with a person who, on the one hand, wants connection, wants intimacy, and on the other hand, is showing up to the relationship with anger. And so you end up with the angry pursuer. And to quote Terry Real, anger is actually not very seductive. It doesn't actually make someone want to move towards you. It, it pushes them away. And again, these are roles that we generally play unconsciously. These aren't people who are sitting there and and going, oh, how will I get my partner to come towards me to be more connected to me? Oh, I'll I'll try on anger for size and, and see what sort of an outcome I get. So the first role in this example of a bad deal is the angry pursuer. So this anger might look like more aggressive body language, like clenched fists, or a raised voice, or even a passive-aggressive tone. It's not necessarily overt anger. It's just any anger that is observable or viscerally can be felt by their partner. So when we have a partner that is angry towards us, there's a number of ways we can respond. And a classic way I've noticed that people respond is that they shut down, that they either become quiet in place and don't say much and maybe they move into fear 
or maybe they're just really not sure what to say and they do a, a stonewalling type of thing, or they may just remove themselves. And what do you imagine someone who comes with anger feels when they reach out for closeness and affection by using the strategy of anger and instead of getting a partner who's warm and loving and caring back, their partner walks off or their partner goes quiet on them. Well, generally speaking, what we find is that that partner becomes more angry, becomes more belligerent. It doesn't necessarily escalate, but it at least continues. As smart as we are as humans, sometimes we we get stuck in these loops and we just keep doing the same thing. And if it's an unconscious thing, we're not even realizing that that's what we're doing. We're not realizing that we keep trying the same strategy and we keep getting the same result. This is what I'm referring to when I say a bad deal. The bad deal is that I give you anger and you give me coldness or or stonewalling or, or abandonment. The more I get angry, the more you abandon me. Terry Real calls this the more, the more. The more I come to you with this strategy of trying to get closeness by being direct or pushy or bossy or angry, the more that you decide, well, I don't really want to be near this person. I don't really want to be close to this person. I don't really want to have anything to do with this person right now. And the cycle continues. It, it creates what I call a dysfunctional dance. That's a really interesting framing of that dynamic. I, I think we've all experienced that and seen that in life and with people where you kind of get stuck thinking the one thing will fix the problem and you don't actually realize that the exact thing that you're doing that you think is the fix is the thing making it worse. And then you're in this circle with the other person where you're both doing those opposite actions and just perpetuating the problem more and more and not able to snap out of it. So people often come to you in that state, I'm sure, when you're doing therapy with them. Suppose they probably have the argument they always have right in front of you or give a big long story about what's going on in their eyes. What's your strategy for uncovering this and working with these types of dynamics when you work with people? Yeah, it's a great question. And just to go back to the first part of what you said, Caitlin, I think we do inherently look for a silver bullet. For whatever reason, we we choose a strategy and we get it in our mind that this is the strategy. And enormously smart people can get caught up in, in this kind of thing. And it's because of what I said before that these are unconscious strategies. So I'm listening and I'm just feeding back what I hear and what I observe. And the better I do this, the more chance there is of them being able to shift out of an unconscious state and move into more like a bird's eye view and actually observe themselves, actually see themselves doing this thing that they may have been doing for 30 years without realizing. In this reflecting period, I myself may not actually be totally aware of what the dance is. I'm in real time with the couple trying to dissect what's really going on here. And so in my observation and naming and articulating things, I may very well gain insight too. I work in a very collaborative manner. So this is really the stage of therapy when we're trying to 
diagnose the issue. We're trying to determine the problem. We're trying to understand the roles that each party plays. Yeah, that makes sense how that first step of just diagnosing the problem and shedding light on what that dynamic is can be a huge first step and and a big part of unraveling it because as you say it's so much of it is unconscious so that's a huge step for you as as the therapist working with them but also I would imagine probably fairly validating if you're able to sort of articulate what's going on from the outside with both people being heard they can see you know see their side of things feel validated but then also understand the bigger dynamic as well is that often kind of what happens yeah that's right you're spot on it's it's surprisingly validating and you wouldn't think that shining a light onto someone's dysfunction or someone's faltering or someone's struggle would have such a it paradoxically has this positive emotional impact because you know as long as you do it in an empathetic and caring way the person can actually feel deeply seen and usually by the time they come to therapy, they're more frustrated with the issue than they are scared of, you know, it's a process and everyone's on a different timeline with this. But generally, they're keen to know what's going on more than they are wanting to kind of hold onto their ego identity around, I don't have any problems or, or whatever. Mm. I suppose even the act of deciding to go see somebody is partly they've already come out of the spell that their one tactic is going to work because it's not working, obviously. And so I suppose in some ways they've already started that process of unraveling it and going, oh, this isn't actually working. So let's figure out what's happening. Yeah, I, I totally believe that's true, that once you reach out to a therapist, or frankly, there's other things as well, you know, deciding to read a book on relationships or going to a retreat, doing something out of the ordinary, it definitely starts to change your trajectory, starts to change the trajectory of the relationship. And so I do often take a moment to really acknowledge this, really kind of congratulate people and say, like, you realize this takes courage to do. Many people just give up on the relationship rather than go talk to some strange man that, that they've never met about their personal issues. And the other thing that's really worth highlighting as well, when we're talking about these dysfunctional dancers, is that it gives an opportunity to depersonalize the issue. So if someone's being an angry pursuer, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means they're stuck in a bad pattern, a bad way of operating that's not working for them. And as Terry Real says, and, and I've said using less eloquent language, neither partner is the problem. It's the pattern that's the problem. It's the fact that there's software that's unconscious running in the background that's the problem. So once you've gotten to that point of essentially diagnosing what the pattern is that they're in, what's the next step to sort of starting to unravel that pattern for them with them? Yeah, great question, and it's an easy answer. Simply, we're trying to work out where this pattern started. We're trying to work out, why did you choose this method? And usually I come at it by asking something like, oh, that you know, that's really interesting. Where did you learn to try and connect with people through anger? Or 
who taught you to be angry or something like that because invariably it it comes from family of origin it comes from sort of pre-18 years of age some point along that history right it might be might be that they're emulating somebody in their life who was angry or even just they had a very silent parent and they had to speak up or or get angry to get attention or something like that i would imagine yeah it's usually either mirroring a behavior they saw or it's a role that they played in their family so say you had a family of three kids each child will generally play a different role you might have a rebellious kid you might have a good kid you might have a whole variety of different roles that 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 person plays and so if it's not simply my dad had an anger problem and I now also have a similar anger problem it could be that they grew up in a big family and they realized again unconsciously they realized that unless they were loud and came with some anger they couldn't get attention from mum or dad or siblings or something like that mm-hmm. and of course this is individual to every couple there are some very very common themes but the details of those themes are, are individual and the, the ways forward are, are quite individual. So yeah, so looking at where they learnt these things, where this all originated, maybe when they remember first, in this example we're talking about first being angry or first feeling those particular feelings that they feel when they're pursuing someone in that anger. And then the other piece of this, and I, and I really love the quote that It takes two people to create a pattern, but only one to break it. And this concept is is never more pertinent than a couple who are caught in a dysfunctional dance, haven't known what was happening, haven't known how to articulate what was happening. Things are deteriorating quickly because often after a period of time, the the dysfunction increases and things speed up and everything becomes more intense as both parties get more and more frustrated with being caught in this bad deal. And so then the, the good news in this is that once they become, once we become conscious of what's going on, there's then the opportunity to consciously make different decisions. And so... In this example, we're using either the person who tries to connect through anger or the person who shuts down or runs off in that behavior has the opportunity to do something differently, either in word or action. And that's the fun and exciting part of this, that once it becomes conscious, we have hope of actually working with these issues. Yeah, and that actually reminds me of what we talked about a few episodes ago about staying curious. When you're a one-trick pony and you're thinking there's only one way to ever solve this problem and it's just doing the same thing but more, you're not open to other possibilities of ways of interacting in that scenario. You might not even realize that they exist. That's what comes to mind for me. I can see how I would just keep going with the same thing and then suddenly if you see it for what it is, you open up that curiosity to try to think of a different way to respond that would just break the cycle yeah that's right and one of the biggest things that actually impedes our curiosity is when we're stressed is when we're caught in fight flight freeze there's whole whole lot of them now any of those trauma or stress responses we narrow down we narrow down in our thinking we become more one-dimensional in our thinking 
And so part of the role of therapy is to actually create a safe space for a person's nervous system, a place where they can relax enough and be calm enough and be also be in a neutral space that the nervous system can calm down and then we can start to foster curiosity. And once the curiosity comes in, the creative solutions, because again, I'm, I'm not there with all the solutions. We're collaborating together on what's going to work for them. People know themselves better than, than anyone else. We can come up with creating and interesting and hopefully even fun solutions and start to rewire their brain, start to rewire these patterns and create a new dance, but one that's not dysfunctional, but one that's functional, one that's getting both parties' needs met. That's really cool to hear to hear how that structure is often with people, how you first need to uncover those patterns and see what they are, and that's a big part of it. And that's a big step towards then being able to fix them. And then you'll need to go into understanding where they come from so that you can work with some of that as well and deal with those patterns based on what their family of origin was, heal some of those wounds and give them some new skills to to upskill in those relational contexts. I really like that idea of of sort of the three of you working collaboratively to come up with solutions together and come up with new patterns. It's cool to hear all that together because I've heard bits and pieces of this and I, I understand a little bit how you how you work with people. But to to hear it in that linear way is very cool. And I, I can see how that would be a really powerful model to walk people through and, and to really, truly create change in their relationships, not just, you know, change their behavior a little bit so that you're putting out fires, but actually really getting to the heart of, of what's going on. And the thing I found helpful about this framing is that I've noticed some people want to get into action really quickly and they want to hit the issues head on. They feel like, oh, I'm about to get divorced. You know, session one, session two, we need to get straight into it. And some people just want to be stuck in the analysis and the analyzing of the issue. And there's this belief that if we can just determine what the problem is, that that will also fix it. But insight isn't enough to fix the problem. And I can't know which practical tools or solutions to apply until we've actually diagnosed the problem. So both pieces of this equation are required to, to see change. Because I don't want people to leave with insight and no change. And I also don't want people to leave with a bunch of tools and activities that don't actually apply for their specific situation. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see how you need both of those together in the right balance. So as we discussed a couple of episodes ago, we're now living in the US and we're settling in nicely here. I've just kicked off my new office, so I'm now able to take in-person appointments with couples and singles. For those of you looking to improve your relationship with yourself or with others, and I'm still offering online sessions as well. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to danielanear.com and on there I have information about what I do. And you can also book a free discovery call from the bookings page there if you'd like to chat more about how I might be able to help you. So thanks for listening to Convergently Speaking today. We really hope this has been of benefit to you and we look forward to talking to you soon. And as always, don't forget to stay curious.